0: Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. My next guest I have known for a long time. I like to say I knew him before he was famous because we have a mutual friend, James Bush, Jamie Bush, for whom my son is named and whose son I am the godfather of. And he said, when you go to New York next, you've got to meet with my friend, Eric McTaxis. And so I did in the lobby of the Harvard Club some decades ago. And Eric is out with this brand new book. I've got the reader's copy. It's not the way it looks in stores. Fish out of water, heavily thumbed, and ready to talk about it. Eric, have you got some time?
1: Well, I, I'll talk to my people. We'll see.
0: Okay. You know, with a memoir, I'm so
1: big now. I really, I don't, I don't have time for this. But you know, Hugh, since
0: we've known each other for a long time, I'm gonna, I'm gonna squeeze you in. Thank you. Thank. You. I want to tell people with a memoir, it's always dangerous because you can find one line in any memoir that completely misrepresents the memoir. Do you want to know where yours is? I think there's a hundred in mine. I put them in there myself. Go ahead. Page three hundred two, quote, and so it was because of a drug overdose that I moved to Boston.
1: Exactly. That's exactly. You're you're very funny. You kill me. I want to start. I predict that you have a future in this business, uh, Mr. Hewitt.
0: I want to start. That's very with, funny. I mean,
1: that's I, brilliant. But to, yes, there's a lot in this. This is the weirdest book. I mean, what do you what do you make of it? It's all true. It is the, the weirdest weird.
0: book. Uh, the first college course I took, Eric, in the humanities, in which you married uh, majored, I didn't take very many. Was called Great Autobiographies, and it began with Augustine's Confessions, and it included Rousseau's Confessions, and I was reminded of both as I read this book because the detail for past life reveals a lot about present conditions, right? Well, that's interesting. Yes, I think that's right. Okay, so tell people first what an earthquake in Greece in 1953 has to do with Eric Metaxas on Skype on the Hugh Hewitt Show in 2021. Um, In
1: 1953, there was a massive, massive earthquake in Cephalonia. That's one of the Ionian islands uh, off the west coast of Greece where my family has been for centuries, because of that earthquake, uh, it really devastated the island. There was, um, there was an immigration quota. The United States let in uh, a bunch of refugees from Greece to come to the United States. My father, by the grace of God, was one of them. He got here in 55. Uh, he met my mother in an English class in 1956. She had escaped from East Germany And then came here and, uh, you know, I was raised Greek and German, which is one way of saying I was raised Greek. And that's uh, that's a big part of what the book is. That's my father on the cover. My mother take took the photo on a date at the Statue of Liberty in 1958. And so we thought it was appropriate to put put that on the cover.
0: Are you aware of the painting uh, approach called Pointillist? Yes, that's what this book is. It's a pointillist memoir. I love this book, and I think Fish Out of Water is going to impress a lot of people because they're going to remember in their own lives the sort of detail that you recall about your life. Uh, and I'm thinking there are not a lot of German-Greek families that are going to run out and buy it because they want to hear their own story. But I want to assure everyone their own story, if they are a boomer, you're a late boomer, is in this book. I think that's true, and, and that's one
1: of the things I say at some place in the book, that I wrote this story for you. I wrote this story for the reader. There are things in here that I know it's by the grace of God, in my experience, will speak to people, a lot of things. And I, I wanted to write something that was you know, utterly apolitical, that is a literary memoir, which will speak to people uh, on the other side of the political aisle. In fact, I think I probably wrote it more for them than for people on my side of the aisle. And, you know, it's not a book. It's not a spiritual memoir. It's just a memoir. But it has spiritual elements in it. And the ending, of course, is profoundly spiritual. But I thought I want to write something for everybody. And I want to be I want to indulge my literary uh, side, which sometimes, you know, writing a biography, as I've done in the past, you don't really get to do, you know, you're kind of uh, a little bit constricted. Uh, Not that that's bad. But, um I, I had some fun with this and as you know, since you've read it, some of the stories are so insane and so funny. I said, I've been dying for decades to write these stories to share these with people because it happened, it's real, and I've just been I've been dying to put it in a book. So well, I'll tell is. you
0: it it's quite captivating and, and I think detail makes a big difference. I have been thinking since finishing fish out of water. And remember, Eric, you've got to say the title of the book seven times for anyone Is to remember. Is the title
1: fish out of water, a search for the meaning of life? I think it's fish out
0: of water, a search for the meaning of life. I'm going to write that down and I'll repeat yeah. it. Yeah. A fish out of water, search for the meaning of life. And it's got a Mark Helprin quote. We'll come back to Mark Helprin, But I am thinking of the bones of a man in a 12th century castle in Germany, uh, somehow who never got out because he was stuck in by two little boys and their mother in a passageway that he couldn't figure out. Just the bones are there. And I'm thinking about the Cambridge police who are still looking for the perpetrators who crushed two oarsmen with the Harvard goalposts after the Harvard-Yale yeah. game in 1982. There's a lot of disclosure in here, Eric. You've you put yourself in harm's way. People have not
1: mentioned this. You're the first. Person. And I thought to myself, this is going to get a lot of attention because I say a lot of things in this book that people didn't know before. Uh, I I tell some stories on myself, and you know that's kind of the point uh, of it. At the same time, uh, not that many people have have mentioned some of these things, and uh, I will uh, I will plead guilty.
0: When I read books, I read them carefully, and I don't know how to talk about Clarissa, so I'm going to let you decide whether or not to talk about Clarissa. I was it's taken. It's I
1: had. I had an experience where, I, I. This is the whole point: is that I talk a lot about the unborn, and I want people to know that I am as far from blameless in this as possible. Which is what I think gives me the moral authority to to talk about the subject. Uh, it's not the only thing, but it's the the principal thing. Um, I think that you know my theology is that I'm a sinner who needs God, and I. If I don't put my sins on the table for people to see, maybe they think I'm just throwing that around. But I do want to be be clear that this is a book that even though a lot of it's really entertaining and, and funny and insane, some of it's rather serious, like the thing that you just brought
0: Oh, there's brought a up. lot that's serious. I, I As I told you, I've read Rousseau and I've read Augustine, and they both have moments where they confront original sin, Augustine's pears, when he steals the pears from the garden. Uh, for no reason whatsoever, and I think of poor little Anastasia, uh, who you wounded, and I think of Terry, whom you wounded, and you talk about them with regret and guilt that is appropriate to a Christian.
1: Well, I it's funny because, um, as I say, I feel like I, I have a kind of a duty to do that to help people understand m- me. You know, in other words, I think that a lot of times, you know, if you're talking about political stuff or this or that, we we all get we reduce each other into these little categories. And I wanted people to see how I got to be who I am, Uh, to talk about my working class immigrant upbringing, which is still with me. My mom and dad, by the grace of God, are still living. And I talk to them almost every day. And that's a joy. That was one of the joys of writing the book is calling them up and and asking them questions and sort of interviewing them. Um, But their stories are my story. And I I think that putting this all out there uh, in this kind of, crazy quilt uh which it really is as you know i just thought it was appropriate and i really wanted it to be entertaining and to be a good read uh which i hope it is but but that's you know um it's uh it's fun sometimes to to jump into somebody's life very much and we're going to
0: talk about some of the fun stuff too do you happen to recall eric that when we met for the first time the impression you left with me is of a brilliant guy who had fatigue syndrome who dragged me to a Bible study at the top of the Rainbow Room with those crazy wealthy people from Connecticut, uh, who, who I thought treated you rather poorly? I don't know if you remember this. Uh, rather, dismissive. I remember them
1: treating me poorly. Not that specific time.
0: Oh, it, it, it was it was a wild situation. It said, "Who in the heck is this Eric Mctaxes?" And this is before your Eric Mctaxes. So, is there going to be a volume two where you deal with oh, yes. the struggle?
1: Oh, yes, 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 yes. This ends around my 25th birthday, and I'm champing at the bit to write the rest of the story. The rest of the story, uh, the title will probably be Pastures New, A Life in Miracles, because I had many, many trials and genuine miracles. I don't say that word lightly, uh, and I want to write about that. But I said I have to tell this story first, uh, but that story is coming because I had huge battles with chronic fatigue syndrome Uh, And all kinds of other weird stuff and Lyme disease and depression and, you know, uh, and some some great stuff too, some good things. But uh, that's that will come in a future book.
0: All right. There should be a volume two. Now I want to go back to uh, Fish Out of Water, which we need to say seven more times for the podcast. Why did your dad leave Technicron for Boliva?
1: Why why did he leave Technicon? Oh, you mean why did he leave leave Boliva for Technicon? I thought it was the other way around.
0: I thought he yeah, left Technicon my, for
1: Bolivar. My dad came to this uh, country uh, um, w- without any particular skills. He was 28 years old, an immigrant, and he had always wanted to get into the burgeoning field of electronics. He saw a billboard, an RCA billboard, when he was in Athens in his 20s. And he kind of thought, I want to do that. You know, TV repair. Can you imagine? TVs were just being uh, brought onto the market. And so he went uh to RCA Institutes to get his degree uh and the first job he got was at Bulova watch company strangely enough uh where he worked that was his first job uh for uh, almost 10 years so when I was born when I was a kid he worked at Bulova in Queens uh a- a- as an electronic technician um and around 1970 um he, th- it's kind of funny. My dad and I, we have many dramatic similarities and in some ways we're followers, right? Like in some ways I'm a trailblazer, but in many ways I'm a follower. If my friend is doing X, I'll kind of go along with it, you know? And we had a friend, Spiros Phyllis, who uh, seemed to be one step ahead of us. They moved to New Fairfield, Connecticut uh, and kept saying, you guys have to move to Fairfield, Connecticut. Uh Spiros got a job at Technicon, which is up in Westchester, said to my dad, you got to get a job up here in Technicon and move up. here." So my dad got a job at Technicon in 1970, uh, and he worked there for quite a long, long time. Uh, it's got to be 20 years or something uh, before he retired. But he uh, at first was commuting from Queens, where we lived, all the way up into Westchester. But then eventually we moved to Danbury, Connecticut. And then he had a commute in the opposite direction <laughs> to Westchester. You see, but people who know pe- sacrifice
0: it just meant everything to me growing up. People who know you from TBN, from the radio, from the National Prayer Breakfast, from Bonhoeffer, from Luther, from Wilbur from everything that you've done, will not think of you as a Queens kid. They simply will not. It's stunning how much of a Queens kid you are. I mean, Yale Queens, it doesn't go together. And moving from Queens to Danbury, as you communicate effectively and fish out of water. I grew up in Warren, Ohio, and we moved a couple of times. But we stayed in Warren. It would be like going from Warren to Atlanta. I, I, mean, I mean, it's a giant cultural drift. It's, a giant, it's down the rapids. It, it couldn't be much bigger in, in America,
1: right? I mean, you go from being a, an immigrant from New York City City, and I don't mean fancy New York, which is Manhattan. I mean Queens Growing up uh in, in the world of the Greek Orthodox Church and the Greek Orthodox parochial school, you know, all our friends are European immigrants, and then suddenly moved to Danbury, Connecticut, where you don't wear a school uniform, you play baseball, football, kickball, you go, you ride your bike, uh, you go fishing. This was like moving to, you know, Huck Finn's, Mississippi. This was a this was moving to America. It was my first real experience of America, America. And I never, all this stuff, Hugh, what's so interesting is I never really processed some of this stuff. And writing this book, you know, I titled the chapter Moving to Danbury. I titled it Moving to America because for me, that's what it was. I became fully American when we moved to Danbury, Connecticut, which is a working class town just beyond the gravitational pull of New
0: York City. Now, you're a decade behind me, but we're watching the same TV. I'm just older than you. And, and by the way, I'm
1: picking up, up, but go ahead.
0: We're we're watching Red Skelton. We are watching laughing. We are watching the same TV. And you detail this through the eyes of the Greek world. Now, my giant experience with Greek America is going to the Episcopal to the Greek Orthodox Church dances and going to which they would put on for kids in the summertime to get us into trouble and watching my big fat Greek wedding. And so when you talk Isn't about I want my
1: book to supplant my big fat Greek wedding as the cultural touchstone for Greek Americans, because I enjoyed my big fat Greek wedding, but that's kind of the, it's kind of the tacky Chicago cartoon version of the Greek immigrant experience. And so uh, it's way better than nothing, but my uh, story of growing up among the Greeks, I think is probably more typical, more nuanced in some ways genuinely funnier because it's so true. But uh, anyway, I just think Greek Americans don't often see themselves portrayed, whether in fiction or in film or TV. And I was really happy to be able to, to do that for my- Well, I Greeks. want
0: people to read it who are Greeks, but I also want people to read it, I'm half German. Uh, I'm a German-Irish family, of which there are many. And I have never met or talked to anyone, I didn't know this about you until I read Fish Out of Water, a young person, and you were young when you went to East Germany, because it was tough to get into East Germany. And you went and saw your your mother's family in East Germany. How old were you when you went to East Germany? I was seven. I turned eight while
1: I was there. We were there for, uh, we were five weeks in East Germany. Uh, and for me, it was like going home because my mother, this is true. And obviously in the book, I recount um, in 71, when I was seven, we went to East Germany. And my mother had talked... My whole life, up to that point, I heard the stories of the village where she grew up, this idyllic universe and I got to go there when I was uh you know seven and a half and to see the world virtually unchanged since her childhood because communism does not have any money they don 't touch anything it's all the same as it was in the thirties and the forties, and when I went there in seventy one I saw that world and I was among what I realize now are my people, the humor that my grandmother and mother had that, that I, you know, it was, it was like mother's milk, so to speak, from a cultural point of view. Suddenly you go to the place where it all came from and it really plugged me in, in in a way that uh, it was extraordinary. And I felt the same uh, a year and a half later when I went to Greece with my father. And those, those really were formative experiences for me where, you know, two places where I didn't feel so much like a fish out of water. I thought this is where I'm from.
0: There is a, a, an arresting, Uh, line that you it's a throwaway line for you I don't know if anyone else will bring it up to you in the many times you talk about it you mentioned that your great aunt is named Elsa uh, and she's your your grandmother's sister and your uncle Paul quote spent eight years in a Russian prison camp and never spoke of it that makes him Solzhenitsyn that makes him what? what Ivan Dinesovich and he never spoke about it that's amazing well, do you you know this is what, well. Look,
1: I mean, it's it's not that amazing. He didn't speak about it because many people who've suffered the tortures of the damned never ever want to speak about it. It's too painful. But that is why, and I write about this in the book. My parents helped me to understand the satanic evil of communism, and I never really thought about it much until later life. But when we're talking about China today, if we in America don't do everything in our power to stand against that evil, God will hold us responsible because I have relatives who suffered horribly and it's no different than Jews in boxcars going to Treblinka. It's no different than uh, slaves being brought uh, you know, across the Atlantic to suffer. If you don't stand up for them when you have a voice, if you don't use that voice. So I didn't mean the book really to go there but you realize where i get my fierce uh, anti-communism from because i know how evil things can get and how evil things are for people around the world this minute and how evil they can get in this country you know and we're we're slipping uh, gaily in
0: that direction well uncle paul is the first intimation of that i want to talk about a different greek character by the way you notice i'm not pronouncing any of the greek names any of the greek sayings or any of the german cities because i can't pronounce anything so you get to fill in but i hope i get this right because who do you think i find to be the most memorable greek character in your book uh maybe andreas vlastos vlastos uh, but this is before I give you the back of my hand, but Vlastos is, uh, before we move to the back of my hand, let's talk about blastos. Oh, no,
1: you know, Kirios Siambas, my teacher in fourth grade. He's maybe, number two. I forgot about
0: him. Yeah. He's number two. Tell us about Vlastos, And does he still have the loft?
1: Well, Andreas Vlastos was an old man in 1983. Oh, so he's not um, with us. I, I, Oh no, no. Um, in fact, if you, you you I think you missed. There's a footnote that talks about his demise. It's very sad.
0: Oh, I a did. New Yorker miss
1: article in 1990 something wrote this. It was it just broke my heart. He was uh, killed by some grifters. It's like the sickest story. But when I'm basically I was at Yale, you know, working class kid wanted to kind of break into the literary world. So what do I do? I get a non-paying internship at Antaeus. Slash Echo Press. Uh, when I told my parents that I got a job in Manhattan that pays nothing, you know, they're thinking, excuse me, Eric, how is that a job again? Can you tell us? And I thought, well, of course, I've got to get a second job that pays money. So I got a job as a bus boy uh, at a Mexican restaurant upscale in, in Soho, and I needed a place to stay that was free. And, you know, all my friends at Yale had, you know, uncles and aunts and friends that had penthouses uh, in Manhattan where they could stay for free for the summer. I didn't have that. So my godmother, Effie Dragaris said, no, we have a friend, Andreas Vlastos, and he lives in uh, in Manhattan. And let me call him up. So she calls him up. He was a miser, kind of. He was kind of a recluse. He had money, but he lived like a miser. But he was very sweet. And my aunt, I mean, my aunt, my godmother, uh, Effie Dragaris said in her Greek accent, she said, he's bohemian type. And I thought, oh, he's bohemian. That's good. Like, that's kind of cool. He probably has like a a cool place in the village or something like that. So I went to meet him. And of course, it is one of the most bizarre stories in the book. Yes, it is. He's a character out of fiction, except I don't exaggerate one syllable in the entire book. And I hate when people exaggerate or say, well, it makes for a better story. I despise that. I I think you need to be able to tell the exact truth but he's somebody that he he just touched me so much because he was very kind to me. Uh, the circumstances of the the two months where I I lived there are bizarre. It was a bizarre oh, oh, you know, Ovaltine and bananas it used to be like a warehouse with a bed.
0: Ovaltine and bananas every morning for breakfast. Do you ever drink Ovaltine I, anymore?
1: You obviously read this book, and it makes me very happy. Um, th- there are are things in here that I've been dying to tell these stories ever since they happened. I mean, I've been telling them, let me say, ever since they happened to anyone who would listen, but I've been dying to put it in a book because I kept thinking people aren't going to believe this. They've got to I've got to write these stories. They're just they're they're crazy. And but that chapter it's, you know, in some ways it can be a standalone. I could see it, you know, appearing in some uh if we had magazines that published things like this, but it's a real portrait of a it's 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 a it's a portrait of a moment in my life and it's a portrait of this Uh, this sweet man who uh, let me stay with him while I was working these two jobs.
0: Eric, I I want to stay here for a moment. Everybody has uh, jobs during their college summers. Everybody does. (laughs) And everybody has stories about them, and I have mine, but this is your book. And trying to take a shower in Vlastoff's apartment with 70s hair, or 80s hair, I guess it's 80s hair, could have been the most impossible thing possible because of the super-duper bolt that you had to pull to get hot water that didn't work. It's crazy.
1: No, there's no there's no way to do it justice in an interview. All I can say is I beg people, please read it and you'll see. But there's no way to do it justice. Well, it le- needs every tiny detail to, so people understand what we're talking about.
0: Let's really sell the book. And then let's talk about Larry David, who's in the same summer with Last Off.
1: No, no. Larry David was, um, after I... I graduated college oh, my notes uh, and are I wrong. wandered oh. in the wilderness of Boston. And I went through my, my really, you know, I graduated Yale with an English degree, which means you can't get a job. I wanted to be a writer. I was floundering around. I really suffered. I mean, to be perfectly honest, it was a very hard time in my life. I was really lost. I end up moving. I always joke around that if you graduate college and you flounder and float, you will move back in with your parents. And if your parents are European working class immigrants, that is not a good thing. They're going to be like Eric. We worked menial jobs, two jobs, to put you through Yale. We didn't get to go to college. We didn't get to live in the United States where we had food every night. What is your problem? Like, why don't you have like you know success? And what what is happening? And and so in that miserable year, uh, I went uh, into Manhattan to visit my friends, and one friend. Uh, she's the, um, uh, her name is now Monica Shapiro, but she was the character Elaine Bennis from the Seinfeld show is based on her. And she has a gruff father. uh, Her name was Monica Yates, her her, uh, maiden name and her gruff father portrayed in that Seinfeld episode, you know, at the end of the episode, he's singing master of the housekeeper, you know, and um, all of that was real. And it was based on Larry David's real life Seinfeld, I should say. So, in 1987, I met Larry David before Seinfeld, before he was famous. He was a struggling comic, too too bright and too dark to make it big. Uh, so he needed to be allied with uh, Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, and basically, uh, we became friends. He invited me to his apartment. I met the original Kramer. When I met him, I didn't know that he would be the basis of this. He came over to character. borrow something, right?
0: He broke into your lunch uh, or, or dinner.
1: Yeah. It's true. I was there for a dinner party and uh, Larry, I'm sure when I had my Christian conversion and became conservative, probably thinks that, you know, I became a Nazi and, you know, it doesn't, it wouldn't even know how to talk to me if we were in the same room, which is a pity. It says something about the left today. But I, I was very encouraged as a writer by Larry David. He he appreciated my humor writing very, very much. So much, in fact, that he connected me with his manager, Which was a big, big vote of confidence, and his manager uh, was the manager at that time of Chris Elliott, who is one of my comedy writing gods or my comedy gods, uh, the great Chris Elliott, and um, and so I felt really privileged. But what happens, you know, a few months into this, is that I have this dramatic, miraculous, religious conversion, and I might as well have been punted, you know, onto the next continent. I was uh, I, I stopped pursuing comedy just briefly enough to lose my career. Um, And here we are.
0: Eric, let let me go back again. I'm jumping around, but I want to jump around because uh, memoirs, even though they're linear, do not hit the reader as linear experiences. You remember certain episodes more than others. And I made notes as I went along and I can go back through it, but uh, I'm a product of parochial education as you are a product of parochial education, but mine was Roman Catholic and yours with Greek Orthodox. The Roman Catholics do a fine job of doctrine and meaning. Not so good with the Bible. We hear it all, but we don't know where it is. We know it's all in there. We can't find it. The Greek Orthodox apparently don't teach any doctrine at all. I, I refer again to your crazy teacher, and now we shall move to the back of the hand. I just, I'll just i never forget that. This guy is, is an abusive monster.
1: I am so glad that these things made an impression on you because it encourages me that they're making impressions on other readers that I will not meet or talk to. But when I wrote this stuff, I thought surely some people will find this insane and hilarious and entertaining because it is. But the fact that you just brought this up, look, I I have to tell you, um, being, uh, I mean, let's go back to the doctrine. The, The amount of Christian doctrine and Bible and so on and so forth that the Greek Orthodox Church typically gets across uh, to the to the kids is Jack Shiite is is I believe the amount if you need a, a, a term uh, bubkis. and so it's a cultural experience. You're Greek, you're Greek. That means you're Greek. You're not a Turk. You're not a Muslim. We're not atheists. So you're a Christian. But theoretically, you know, you're picking this up because you're in parochial school. No, not happening. So I. Uh, I find myself, you know, in in another universe. I mean, it's one thing to be in Queens in the Greek community. It's another thing to be uh, given a teacher who obviously doesn't know he's not in Greece, doesn't know it's not the 1940s. He is like something out of a book. This is 1971, 70, yeah, 70, 71, 72, and he was a a glowering figure from the past. Uh, who no one had told him that uh, in American schools, we don't beat the children about the head with our hands. And so wearing I rings. Was a good kid. Wearing well, rings. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, we have to say that the Greek phrase, he, he would routinely buffet his charges. I mean, this was normal that the kids, mostly the boys, and I think maybe they got this at home. So they considered this totally normal, but he would slap them in the head and whatever. This was like almost funny, except it wasn't, but at one point, if he got really mad, he would use the Greek phrase, anapodes. and of course, we didn't speak Greek in my house. So anapodes, what is that? I had to ask. And it means he's going to begin the backhands. In other words, now we're going to get serious. I, I will now move to the next level of corporal punishment, backhands. And all the Greek kids suddenly, they understood somehow. Maybe at home, this was a thing. Like if I go to the level of whacking you with the back of my hand you you know it's serious because he'd have these big rings on and it was kind of a downward stroke bang and i, I remember hearing this and thinking what world am i in even at age 7 and 8 thinking th- this is I, i'm am i in america what what decade is it it's real and and you know i talk about how he was like smoking in the classroom and he would hawk these lugers I don't really need to get into that because my wife gets upset, but I detail that in the book. Uh, he made use of the open trash cans in the lunchroom where we had our class uh, to uh, to to expectorate. Well,
0: let me tell, tell you, there are many here. there are many episodes that will resonate. I have no connection to that one. Let me tell you the one that I have the most connection to. Like you, I was my college class day speaker. I at Harvard, you at Yale. Like are you, kidding? I had to. Def- no, I did. How did you never tell me that? you get well, t- I didn't know did you were. Habit? I didn't know you were. But you followed. I followed Rodney Dangerfield, and I thought I was screwed. Uh, I also had a roommate in college who was killed, so I had to give the uh, memorial, but not on class day. You had to follow with the class day speech the memorial for a much-beloved classmate, which I consider to be... I had to follow Rodney Dangerfield until yesterday when I finished this book. I thought I had it bad. No one has ever had to do what you did. You might want to tell that story and the fact that it worked. Well, I just
1: have to say that, again, writing some of these things, you don't know where things are going to go when you're writing them, if you can pull it off. And there are a few things in there where I give myself, you know, a big pat on the back that I was able to pull off, you know, the, the snoring uh, in the uh, in the German Hostel in the Black Forest, the the night where we didn't get to sleep because there's a man snoring uh, as loudly as thunderclaps like nine feet from your head. Uh, There's another episode uh, where I talk about bladder ball at Yale, which is, again, you read it and you think, is is he making this up? No, actually, it's all exactly true. And I have witnesses. But what you're talking about, I don't even know uh, where – to begin. Uh, It it was just
0: it. it, I mean, what struck you about it? Let me ask you that I wouldn't have gone through with the speech. I was facing a Rodney Dangerfield crowd that had he had broken down in tears because he was talking to the Harvard Class Day speech and his parents were immigrants and he didn't go to college. And so I'm sitting there thinking, now I've got to give the funny speech after that. And I got through it because I learned that day, if you mention a group within a group, and I began the speech by saying thanks to the Harvard band, and they cheered, so I then dropped in the oh, Harvard band. You are already brilliant then, you but repeatedly anything. get the well, lap line repeatedly. Me,
1: but I I, that, I, I, I was in a hole. You were in a much I, deeper. Yeah, hole. No, no. This was like this was a waking nightmare, and yes. people think I'm exaggerating. When you read it, you will see. There's if no way speak. I can I can do it justice here but I will I'll try. I'll basically say this. I uh, and my friend Chris Haines uh, who's uh, who appears in the book and we're still good friends. He and I wrote the class history. It was a it was a comedic speech, a comic speech. We were the editors of the Yale Record, the, the the college humor magazine, so we're the funny guys. And and the class history every year, uh, the day before graduation on class day, you give the speech to 10,000 people gathered uh, on, on old campus there. And it's supposed to be funny. And we were picked unanimously uh, because nobody else knows how to do humor. We listened to the other speeches. We were standing outside the room. They were not funny. People don't know how to do funny. Funny is hard. But we knew because we'd been writing for the Yale Humor Magazine. And, and to be fair, Chris Haynes wrote 90% of it, I think. I mean, he, he really uh, did it. But- we're sitting on the platform, Dick Cavett is to our left. I didn't know that in the future he would become a personal friend. And we're just sitting there looking at the crowd, 10,000 people, and right before us there's a memorial service for there was an African American student who was a Rhodes scholar, he was going to be a Rhodes scholar. He was the protege of Bill Clinton in Arkansas. He was a poor son of a of a Baptist preacher. And there was a memorial service for for Rosie Thompson, Roosevelt Thompson, and people are weeping. It was one of the most moving, sad things you could even imagine. And I looked down at my program and immediately following this, it says the class history with Eric Metaxas and Chris Haynes. And it suddenly dawned on me that with 10,000 people honking and sobbing, we're now going to be introduced to get up to give a stupid, humorous speech. And I said, this is the kind of thing where you have a nightmare and then you thank God when you wake up. I'm so glad I was dreaming. Wow. Except we weren't dreaming. And the idea that we're, we're both sitting there, realize you're pinned like beetles. There's nothing you can do. You are being inched forward to the gallows with every second that passes you have no ability to speak it is like in a dream you can't scream you can't there's nothing you can do they are going to people are going to somebody's going to pull out a gun there when you would 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 crack stupid jokes following the sanctity of what has just happened i don't know who planned this i think it was our evil a class secretary who's now my friend larry lawrence And I got to tell you, it was – it's just one of those things that you – you somehow you live through it. The good news is that our opening line, which I had forgotten about, was sufficiently humorous at the expense of the class secretary that everyone instantly exploded into laughter at his expense. And it just – it was like a – it punctured the balloon, and we were off to the races. But I – didn't know it was going to go that way, and I just, I, I just, uh, I'm having, um, you know, gastrointestinal distress just remembering it. So I'll no, leave it. At I, that. I will
0: tell people this is why you read memoirs, is because they will trigger in you memories of similar situations. I hadn't thought about the Rodney Dangerfield moment in 15 years. And by the way, the next day speaker, you had a horrible graduation. My next day speaker was Solzhenitsyn. So sit for two and a half hours in the rain listening to a guy in Russian. And that's the difference between class day and graduation. You capture that as well.
1: Uh, actually, yes to no, tough guy. Here's the difference. You had Raji Dangerfield and Solzhenitsyn. We just had Dick Cavett. Now, I like Dick Cavett, but let me put it this way. He's no Solzhenitsyn. No,
0: so All right, I want to close by talking about something that you intimate. And I think it's very important. You intimate but do not declare that the education you received as a disappointed non-admittee to Yale for your first year you went to Trinity, great school. You intimate that the education you got there was better than the education that you got at Yale. Infinitely better. And that's what I want America to hear. I want them to hear
1: that. Well, uh, here's here's, here's the issue. Uh, I don't know where Trinity is today, but in 1980 when I went off to college, I go to Trinity College in Hartford because I didn't get in where I wanted to, to get in. And I was, you know, 16 years old when I graduated and I had no guidance counselor to tell me, don't take this course or do this or that. And, and you know, uh, we're working class uh, European immigrants. And so I go off to Trinity knowing that I want to transfer. I don't want to go to a small, you know, kind of prep school uh, environment. But I go there and some friends from my high school, two friends went there as well. And they said, you need to get into guided studies. It's a guided Honors Humanities program, and I jumped on it. And the education I received there was it was the great books of the Western canon. It was the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, Milton, all the great books and the history. And it was magnificent. And it helped us to think about the meaning of life. When you read about Socrates, and you're learning about the meaning of of life, even though your professors aren't going out of their way to teach you the meaning of life, but they're teaching you the great books that help you think about the meaning of life. And then when I went to Yale, I realized people at Yale don't really believe in the meaning of life. They believe in the meaninglessness of life. And so they don't kind of go there. They don't want to talk about the meaninglessness of life. It's too depressing. We don't want students to kill themselves or to tell their parents. So we'll just ignore those things and we'll sort of teach the meaninglessness, you know, by osmosis. Uh, and um, when I when I was at Yale, I, I didn't, I cannot remember a single course at Yale right now that I think, wow, I'm so glad I took that. Oh course. no, you had the seminar. Were... You must have loved the, the writing seminar as a senior. Um, yes and no. Uh, I had John Hersey. Uh, yeah, was you had John was, yeah That was well. I mean, y- yes and no. It's it's complicated. But that yeah, that was one of the better ones. Let's put it that way. But there were um, the humanities courses, the English courses, you know, they were all already into Jacques Derrida and Uh. this kind of stuff that, by the way, I met Jacques Derrida. I write about that in the book. I mean, I met the strangest people. I ushered Jacques Derrida across the quad at Calhoun College at Yale with an umbrella in the rain. Uh, I actually wrote a poem about it. I didn't print it in the book because it's not good enough, but- I mean, the idea that I walked with this man who's, you know, the the zeitgeist in a French suit, uh, the, the, this nihilistic, you know, post-structuralist, blah, 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 blah. So, yeah, Yale was already into political correctness and kind of Marxist critical theory in the early 80s. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's a that's a hint that, that was you, not a you good can thing.
0: learn wherever you go. The good life. Uh, three last things, Eric. Um, people who want to cheat who go into a bookstore and find uh, a fish out of wa- a fish out of water, Eric's memoir will need to go to page three sixty nine and read if nothing else. You can just read this and leave the book in the store though Eric will be mad. Uh, Swimming to my father, your poem is beautiful, uh, and I think it's very good that you included it. Swimming to my father is very touching. then uh, drop the second song, Adam nobody. Now, I always pay attention to the music that people use in their books. I don't know if you noticed I began the segment with Robert Plant, Heaven Knows. But when you are depressed in high school and listening to Nobody Mattered, I said to myself, nobody in America has a unique high school experience. Nobody does. You all listen to the same top 40 music. And you drop music in and out. But you're not, I expected you to be, a classical music snob. You're not. You're a popular music junkie, just like everyone else who is your age. I wish I were a classical music snob, but I never had the
1: privilege of being around people who appreciated classical music. So I'm a a big ignoramus uh, to this day, mostly. And um, I'm not proud of it. But I think that I respond... uh, This is a big part of who I am. I respond viscerally. Songs move me. Uh, I'm not even listening to the lyrics. They're they're just songs that are uh, the music is powerful, uh, or catchy or something. I really hate eighties music, but seventies music, uh, I have to say there are so many songs that just really, really grab me. And yeah, there's a, there's a moment when I'm on the cross country team. Uh, I'm, a am 14 years old. Uh, I'm wearing basketball sneakers because we can't really afford to get fancy running sneakers. And we're kind of thinking, how stupid is that? Like running sneakers, sneakers are sneakers. And, um, yeah, it was the FCAC Championships. Uh, it was a, just a huge thing down in Stamford, Connecticut, or something like that. And I, I'll i never forget it. There are moments in life that you never, ever forget. I can hear the music now. The bus is, is moving north through the rain and the the changing leaves. And I'm listening to Carly Simon on, on somebody's boombox playing, you know, nobody does it better. And uh, it was just this elegiac, wistful, Moment that
0: I will never, I will never forget. That's why I, I think people will find their own memories in a memoir. Last thing, I want to pay homage to Ed Tuttle. Uh, you've told me about Ed Tuttle before. In fact, you told me about it in the Harvard Club when we first met fifteen or twenty years ago. And Ed Tuttle, I don't know if he's alive, but if if anybody he's alive. takes it, call
1: him up now. He's a good friend. He's a wonderful, well, dear friend.
0: Everyone should be Ed Tuttle. Everyone should act in their workplace as Ed Tuttle acted towards you. So why don't you tell people about Ed Tuttle at Union Carbide?
1: At the lowest moment of my life, um, 24 years old, I moved back in with my parents. My writing is going nowhere. Uh, I needed to get some kind of a job. What do you do with an English degree from Yale? You can't do a darn thing. But I could get a job as a proofreader at the international chemical conglomerate Union Carbide, whose world headquarters are in Danbury, Connecticut. So I go to this corporate environment. For me, it was like hell on earth. Uh, and in this corporate environment, I was paid to proofread chemical manuals while I'm doing my writing on the side, parentheses, I'm not doing any writing on the side. <laughs> and I'm living with my parents. And in this horrible, horrible moment in life, and I mean, when I say I suffer from depression, I mean, I'm not joking around. It was, it was very bleak. God sends uh, a graphic designer into my life. His name's Ed Tuttle. He's uh, back then, I guess he was 32. I was 24 and and he uh, would bring over bits of things for me to proofread. And we'd kind of chit chat. He clearly was a very serious Christian and he starts sharing his faith with me in a ginger uh, gingerly. And I, I was on the one hand, a little bit interested, but also I'd been trained at Yale to avoid these people like the plague. Conservative Christians are obviously, uh, you know, they're tomorrow's violent insurrectionists, obviously, and they should be put in in prison camps. If only we could find out who is in the capital, Bank of America will tell the world because, you know, they're dangerous people. And so this uh, this dangerous person lovingly shares his faith with me over the course of months and millimeter by millimeter. I started moving in that direction. But when he'd say, let's go to church uh, this weekend or let's do a Bible study, I thought, no, 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 no. I don't want to become like a religious fanatic like you. Thank you very much. And at the end of a number of months, my heart, I think, had been prepared sufficiently, just barely, but enough that God was able to speak to me at the end of this book, uh, around my 25th birthday, in a dream, in a way that can only be described as miraculous. Um, It's why the book is titled Fish Out of Water. It's the main reason. And all I can tell you is that it happened. It changed my life dramatically instantly. And I thought, I think someday I need to tell this story because there aren't too many of these floating around out there. So that's why I wrote the book.
0: And so how often do you talk with and when was the last time you spoke with Ed Tuttle?
1: Uh, I think six weeks ago, uh, or eight weeks ago, I was in his house, uh, with Suzanne uh, up in Connecticut. Uh, I don't get to see him much and I, I don't get to talk to any of my friends. If any of my friends are, are listening to this, they know I'm not making that up. I, I have no time. I'm late with new book manuscript, very late. Uh, and if I have any spare time, I make sure that I spend it with my mom and dad. My dad's 93 and, uh, Uh, I love my parents more than words can express. And so if I have any time, I'm either talking to them on the phone or I'm with them in Connecticut. Um, But there are a handful of friends out there that I I love so much. Ed Tuttle's at the top of the list. He knows it. And uh, he's incredibly humble. And uh, he's the real deal. If you're the real deal, boy, God can use you in this life.
0: Bonus question. John O'Brien is a friend of yours who was an atheist who became a Christian and is now a theology professor at Cambridge. Uh, that That's an uh, extraordinary not, deal. Not John, not, not John O'Brien, Ian
1: McFarlane. John O'Brien, oh. There's a, I mean, there's a number of friends in this book. They're going to be shocked when they find out they're in my book. But, I mean, everybody I write about, I think everybody, and John O'Brien and Ian, they, I just love them. Just remembering them, I just love them. If they knew how much I loved them, they'd call me up, because I really do. But Ian McFarland was this brilliant, brilliant uh, kid at Trinity. And, you know, he was like 50 years old when he was 17 years old that year. I'll never forget it. And he was just so brilliant. And I remember at the time thinking of myself as some kind of a Christian, but I, I had no clue. I was clearly not, you know, clear on anything. And this is before I drifted away, clearly. But he was an atheist, and that kind of shook me. I thought, this is the smartest guy I know, and he's an atheist. And, and I— but he was respectful of my faith and we would have conversations. They were not really debates so much, but after I went to Yale, I found out that he had become a Christian and I'll never forget it. I thought, wow, well, there you go. You know, that's, that's kind of amazing. Of course, that's before I drifted away from faith. God rescued me around my 25th birthday, but I, I think my experience is, is more typical than not because many oh, people is, don't but, but have about Ian then.
0: Do you ever talk theology with a professor of theology at Cambridge?
1: I've lost touch with all these folks. I did reach out to him during the writing of the book. I found, uh, I I reached him at Cambridge. And if I, when I go back to Cambridge, because I love Cambridge and Oxford, uh, there is no doubt that I'm looking him up. Because now that I know, excuse me, that he's there, I just, I can't, I can't wait, frankly. You you know it. congratulations, Derek.
0: We've reached the time limit of the podcast. Eric McTaxe's Fish Out of Water, a wonderful book, a great fun read. And I think everyone will find something in there that will touch something in their past. That's what memoirs do. Well done. This is my favorite interview. Thank you, my friend. Well, you always say that, but nevertheless, I hope it lasts for a bit longer than than, the interview. Eric, thank you. Thank you, Eric. Thank you.